Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, we have former lifeguard Steve Alderman. He moved down the south coast and he was involved with the bushfires of 2019. He tells his story when he was on FaceTime speaking to his wife while his kids and wife were in the car trying to escape the flames and he could see the flames all around the car and the bush and it was quite terrifying. He also has been a coach for Olympic athletes. So now let's have a listen to my chat with Steve. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. It's a former lifeguard that I've worked with for many years and uh, grew up around the Bondi area together. Uh, Steve Alderman, Aldo, how are you? Good, Hoppo. Good. Glad you could uh, put me on your screen and uh, you get to see my ugly face, but I guess everyone else gets to hear me. But, yeah, no, uh, good to see you, mate. Mate, uh, you're maturing like a good red wine, mate. Don't yes, worry about that. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all doing that, I'm sure. <laughs> mate, uh, put it this way, you're doing better than Yatesy. Well, I'll take that as a big compliment. <laughs> well, mate, I thought I'd get you on because, you know, you, you, we have been mates for a long time and you worked as a lifeguard. And But there is a story behind all this when you moved down the south coast. And for people listening from overseas and, and around Australia, they, they would remember the, the devastating fires that we had down south. Um, so give us a bit of a... a, a rundown on yeah that sort of started 2019 around new year's eve yeah so it started a little bit earlier than that sort of around november time the cowan bushfire um it was a massive fire front um and we were sort of always on edge um during that whole time you know because it was coming close it sort of it got to borley and then the wind changed and it got to lake to bowery and the wind changed and so we sort of kept escaping it, but um, as the summer went on and, and the conditions got hotter and, and windier, um, the threat became closer. And um, yeah, unfortunately, um, that that threat was just, um, it happened so fast for us. And uh, unfortunately, we lost our house and uh, yeah, people lost their lives. And it was, um, yeah, it was a pretty traumatic day um something i'll never ever forget that's for sure yeah so so prior did you so you knew it was all happening the the bushfires around where you were and so did you put a a plan in place yeah yeah we did we every day we packed the car and we drove into town and we assessed the conditions and we waited to see what lunchtime would bring you and and then we'd follow the the fires army app and and you know just just do a, a general surveillance and then we'd make a decision whether we'd go back home um that day and we had the car packed and well for for a, for a long time for for a month leading into it that was sort of our routine but um as things happened on that day it was new year's eve we didn't do that 
The one day that we right. didn't do it is when the fire struck and um, it was actually a backburn gone wrong. So the, the two main fire fronts were about 100k from us to the north and south. But what actually happened was uh, the RFS did a backburn about oh, 25k west of us to, to put up a defence line and that backburn um, got out of control. And so uh, that sort of came to us really quickly. Um, what actually happened was that it's called a pyrocumulus so it's a weather pattern that happens within itself and from all the heat. And um, before we knew it, uh, the fire was here and we, we had no time. Well, I actually wasn't there. I was in Sydney, but my wife and kids were, were in Conjola and, um, yeah, it, it came within minutes and, and took, just took everyone unawares. So tell us the story then when you were up in Sydney working and then they were down there and – when did you get that call or you knew that it, it was going to really impact where you actually lived? Yeah. So my wife rang me in the morning and she said, um, look, it looks fine. We're not going to go into town. We've organised, you know, a, a little lunch with the neighbours for New Year's Eve type thing. And the, there was no wind. Uh, there was a sunny day. The, the, the skies were actually the clearest they've been for months. And I went, no problems. Look, I'll finish up at work and I'm on my way back down. Um, and then at about 11 o'clock, my wife rang me and she was on FaceTime and she showed like smoke and stuff starting to just form over the lake and the back. And I, I went, oh, shit, like this, this doesn't look good. And she said, yeah, like, we're out of here. So she went to drive into town and she went up to the highway and they turned around and said, no, you can't come in because we've got the roads closed, the, the main highway. Um, so she went back and then by the time she got back um, to the house, things have started to escalate really badly. Like the fire was coming pretty much in every direction. So then all the neighbors got together and they formed a convoy to, to go to the lake. They tried to get to the lake. Uh, they couldn't get there uh, because the fire had already reached that part of the lake. So then they tried to go to the beach, so they formed another convoy and they headed down to the beach and they got turned around again. The fire again was, was engulfing from sort of the coast up to us. Then from there, back out to the highway and I was on FaceTime the whole time with my kids and I was watching it and I was sort of stopping, pulling over the side of the road and then guiding them through. And, I just said, look, stick with the neighbours, stick with Dave and, and stick with Spencer. They were our neighbours and they knew the area. They were, you know, they're fishermen, they're watermen, they're, they're guys that know what to do in that situation and they'd, they'd stay calm. Um, so they got to the highway and the fire was, it was upon them. So there was one RFS truck. So that guided them away from the fire initially um, along the highway to a safe place and then uh, FaceTime was sort of dropping in and out but I could see the thermometer in the car and it was up to 50 degrees uh, inside the car. So they played this cat and mouse sort of game along the highway. There was about 15 cars um, with the RFS guys and then as time went by they got into more sort of hairy situations where there was fire on the side of the road they were driving through flames 
They were going through smoke where they couldn't see. And then slowly the convoy started to break up. People started to make different decisions. Some turned left, some turned right, some turned around. So I just said, look, just stay with the fire truck. You know, my wife was making at that time pretty much life and death situation, you know, critical moves about what to do. And her decisions were, you know, she was scared, but she was, she stayed calm, which was probably a a good thing. And I I just praise her for that. Um, The kids were freaking out. The dog was freaking out. The temperature in the car was getting like up to the high fifties now. Um, So they, they got through the bulk of it. um, And I think there was only like five cars left at this stage and they were driving along the highway and they were heading towards Sussex Inlet and there was a police helicopter on the road. So they sort of came out of the smoke and there was a helicopter there. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, this doesn't look good. By this time, I, I'd got to Nowra, so as far as I could go south and I was just sort of communicating them in with, with bits of FaceTime, a little bit of phone call time, just, you know, trying to talk them through it and stay with them. But my heart rate had never been so high. It was like it was pumping. So they got to the the main turn off at Sussex, and I was I got to Macca's at Nara, and I saw it on the TV, and they were doing a live cross from the, from the actual spot. And what I saw was the flames were coming from the north and the south and the west, and there was this copper running for his life to his car. And he like he ran up the hill and like they had this live cross and the, the cameraman was really shaky, but I could see a glimpse of my car behind this copper's car. So I knew that that's where they were and they were heading to Sussex. Then I lost communication with them. Like the, the phones were out. There was no power anywhere. Um, so I knew they were on their way to Sussex and then so I just tried to monitor what was going on. I just had to sit around and wait because I couldn't get through. And how tough was that, the, sit- oh, the sitting and, and, and not yeah. knowing? You know? It was hell. It was hell. And I knew that area like I kn- I, and I knew what the winds were doing and it's just all bush, like that road down to Sussex. There's just it's mm. thick bush, and you know that they were playing cat and mouse again, or they were running for their lives at this stage. Luckily, they had the fire truck there, they had the police there, and they ended up making it to Sussex. But I didn't hear from them for probably two or three hours, so I was properly shitting myself. So at that point, did you think that they possibly could be dead? They could have been burned alive. There was, uh, yeah, there were some thoughts of that for sure. Um, <laughs> but I was trying to stay, you know, positive that, you know, they're in a car, they're driving that way, they're with the police. But, you know, people that did make those turnoffs and, and wrong decisions around that area actually died. Mm. So, um, yeah, in, in hindsight, I'm just so glad that they stayed with the group of people that they were with. Um, and, and they got to – they ended up getting to Sussex Bowling Club and I got one bar of reception and I made a phone call and I just knew that they were fine. Right. right? So they were in a place that, you know, the whole town sort of flocked into Sussex main town. They had no power. There was, there was nothing. There hadn't been power for hours um, and they had to sit and wait it out. So um, I was stuck in Nara. I slept um, at a mate's place in Nara. Woke up in the morning at um, this is about three thirty in the morning, and I tried to get into Jarvis Bay or, or onto the highway. And the police said, "No, it's it's not going to happen today. Like the fires, just it's too intense." So 
I sort of sat around. Um, I got, I, I did start text messaging so we could communicate through text. So I knew where they were. I knew what they, what they were doing. I knew they were okay, which was the main thing. Um, but they wanted out of there. They just, they were just, they were freaking out. They were really traumatized by the whole event, and I wanted to see them. So I was sitting in the car park at Nara. And a mate of mine rang me and he said, where are you? And I said, I'm just, you know, sitting here waiting, twiddling my thumbs type thing until I can get through. And he goes, I've got a boat. And I went, oh, righto. So he said, can you look for somewhere where we can launch? And he was in Sydney and he said, I'm on my way down. I've got a boat. We're going to go get him. I went, oh, this is going to be interesting, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So we hatched a plan and it all sort of worked out. The plan changed a few times. But we got the boat in the water and we ended up driving over to – and we were just driving into smoke. Like I I couldn't see. And luckily he knew where he was going. He's from the area. And we – as we're coming into Sussex, basically Sussex was on fire. Except for the town, either side of it, there was flames to the water. Mm. You know, everything was just on fire. And you could just see everything was – the whole south coast was burning. And like we got, there was a guy sitting on the jetty. He had a warm case of VB and he was about 10 deep and he was having the time of his life. Not, you know, he was aware of what was going on behind him, but it was just like Armageddon, you know. <laughs> so as I'm on the boat, my phone rang and it was Justine, my wife, and she said, where are you? And I said, I'm, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. I'm on a boat. I'm just about to pull into Sussex Inlet. And she just screamed. She went, yeah. no way. And then she goes, how, like, what, how's this going to work? And I said, well, I'm just going to get you out of here and we're just going to go to Sydney because yeah. we're just, you know, there's nothing. We had nowhere to go. Yeah. We had no house, whatever. That was all gone. Um, they were pretty traumatized. And then we had to get some reinforcement boats to get the neighbors out because they wanted to get out of there too see their relatives so as it worked out yeah we got them out of there it was a it was a great reunion on the shores there at sussex <laughs> inlet there's a few locals that were pretty happy um and yeah we we just got them back to the car and 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 jumped in the jumped in the car and just headed to sydney just for some friends of ours put us up and we just had to sort of gather our thoughts and and try and work out a plan of you know what to do next and you know you don't really plan for something like your house to burn down and, and you know, you insure against it and you, you, you hear people have it, but when it happens to you, yeah, it's like, where do we go to next? So at that point, though, you, you didn't know that your house had burnt down or you didn't know what was happening until you could go back and check it? Yeah, we knew the house was gone. Right. Pretty much in Conjola Park, there's there was I think there was a hundred houses there, um, and ninety of them were gone were burnt. So it was a fair <laughs> chunk. But Justine had got text messages from our neighbours, and like the grapevine was 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 flowing around. But we knew our house was, was definitely gone. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was pretty sad to know that, and and all the memories that were in the house. So. Yeah, it was tough, definitely tough. And what was that like when you did get the chance to go back? And, and as the listeners, um, we did shoot a bit of Bondi Rescue about this and, and I was down there and, and standing there and walking through uh, the devastation of where your house was before and it was, um, you know, it was quite heartbreaking 
for me just to, to look at that, let alone yeah. being you, as that was your family home and yeah. you, you had it and you, what was yeah. that feeling like? Oh, it was it was gutting. Just, just It was like another planet actually because it was, was full of green trees and just beautiful landscape and it was just black, you know, and the trees that were there. They were big gum, solid gum trees, and they were just like matchsticks. Yeah. And the, I actually got to the house, and I just looked at it, and I just went, "Oh my god!" Like it was just, it was just total wipeout. The whole, the whole village was just wiped. Yeah. There was, there was nothing. There was probably six or seven houses standing, and you can imagine the landscape was just black, and all the trees were gone. It was this silence. It was, um, yeah, it was definitely like another planet. Yeah. Now, mate, uh, the recovery, though, like, you know, you obviously couldn't go there. You moved um, to, to other areas. And was there a plan to rebuild or just to move somewhere else? What was the, you know, the after that devastation? Yeah, it took a while to work out what the plan was, you know. Um, we sort of thought about rebuilding. My wife and kids were pretty traumatised by fire um, and being in the bush. So eventually we made a decision to move closer to town, so to move to Mollymook. We just couldn't get our heads around it more from an emotional point of view um, that, you know, we just couldn't be back there. You know, some people stayed, some people left. Everyone had, I guess, different circumstances. You know, insurance was a big factor, Um, family, friends, kids you know the whole thing had to weigh up and and make those decisions but at the end we we decided to to not go back and how's the recovery now with um you know the bushland the and and also you know a lot of people with the not only the the communities that live there but there's so much wildlife around there like how's that recovery because there was so much lost Oh, it's devastating, you know, not to have those, like the birds and the kangaroos and the snakes and stuff that you saw every day, you know, all those echidnas, you know, we had we had kangaroos living under a house. It was, you know, but the, I guess initially it was about rescuing the animals from from the, the burnt animals and, and treating those and rehabilitating those other those animals. Now, I guess a year and a half to two years on, it's turned into more of um, the habitat, like sheltering the animals. So providing food and shelter for the animals to regenerate and, and start reproducting, you know, that reproducting cycle again. Um, the bees, people have, you know, there's more people keeping bees now than I've ever known. Um, like the bird situation, there's different shelters are up and down the coast for different species of birds. Um, and it's getting that vegetation back. So giving them, giving the animals their home back. And we've been lucky, I guess, that we've had a lot of rain uh, in the last six to 12 months. So that's sort of accelerated the the greening up of of the landscape again. So hopefully it's early days now, but, you know, there's a lot of community groups just involved in, and the government as well, um, everyone wants to do the best thing possible to, to get the, one, the vegetation back and the landscape back, but also to have, you know, the wildlife kicking again. And also, uh, the houses are they starting to build again? Can you can you see the development as well as the wildlife all coming yeah, back together? Yeah, d- definitely. Like you you drive into Conjola Park now, and 
you know, there's houses going up left, right and centre. The people that sold their land, put new people have moved in and bought and rebuilt. So there's a lot of construction going on. Absolutely, there's heaps. So um, I guess it's going to come back, but it's going to lose that bush village type of feel because the trees aren't there. You know, that's one thing you notice when you drove down into that amphitheatre. You had the lake and like the valley and the greenness of it all and the rawness of it all. I guess that's gone. Uh, will it come back? I, I hope it does. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, it, you, you know, there's a, there's plenty of positives there. There's new families out there rebuilding mm. and, and they're going to make their homes out there now. Well, suppose, you know, the, the vegetation, that you've had probably hundreds of thousands of, you know, thousands of years worth of, of, of building up, you know, and, and, and suddenly it's just all bang gone. In, yeah. In one hit. Yeah, the trees, the trees are old, you know. They're, they're, they've been around for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years down there, yeah. um, that whole landscape. It's, it's very untouched, you know. You, you go down there and you just appreciate nature for what it is because you've got all the, the greenery and you've got all the animals down there. But it's sad, you know, when you, when you saw the aftermath of, of the fires. But, you know, in time, it, it'll all come back. So mm. that's a positive. And how are the the businesses doing now down there? The communities. I mean, I know we, the, you know, they caught the fires. Then we've we've caught COVID and lockdowns, yeah, and yeah. there's been no tourists. It, it must be pretty tough for them. Yeah, it's a roller coaster because we have sort of been in and out of lockdowns and stuff like that. And you, as you say, you know, you've got these fires where. The, in the middle of summer where people have lost a lot of income and then we piggyback straight into COVID um, where tourism just gets smashed. And that's what, you know, the South Coast is around this area. It's massive tourist area. Um, but the community here is, is like, it's like no other. It's really close-knit, super supportive of each other. Like there's just little community groups, that, the football teams, the board riders, the surf clubs. You know, there's, there's a group called Treading Lightly that acts as a, a conduit to support everybody. And uh, just, you know, there's, there's downsides to living in a small town, but there's, there's plenty of upsides. And, and this town's, um, it, I guess it punches above its weight in community support down here. So it's been really pleasing to watch. You know, we're, we're not even proper locals. We've only been here for 10 years. And the support that we've had is, is just insane. So, yeah, super humbling too. Well, but how are the kids coping now after that? I mean, I remember when I was down there, I think their bikes were up there and they were mangled and melted and yeah. just walking through that devastation. I'll never get out of my mind on, on seeing that. And I remember you showed me photos of how the house looked before that and yeah. looking at the rubble after was just yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's just like a bomb's gone off. Yeah. But yeah, the kids are good. Look, they still... Like if they see a backburn or something, the, the, their, their senses will enlighten. You know, we'll be driving along the highway or something and they'll see a backburn and like their ears will prick up and yeah. they'll know, you know, they'll smell the smoke. So it definitely has an effect on them. And for Justine, like to go what through what she went through, like it's pretty traumatic experience mm. to make those decisions and, you know, and come out the other side and be alive. And so, yeah, they're – they're not – I wouldn't say they're 100% recovered, but they're on their way yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you said that, you know, some people made those decisions and potentially the wrong decisions. The panic might have got to them and they turned off. 
Were there people that you knew down there that actually perished in that fire? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. A neighbour up the road, um, he tried to defend his house. Uh, yeah, uh, he stayed and then from what we can understand is he made a last-minute run for it uh, and, yeah, it was it was – it was not good. Mm. But, yeah, there was there was a few people, you know, there was a guy at Sussex who decided to take a turn off to a dirt road that he knew that was going to get him home quicker and that was just, you know, a, a situation where he, he made that decision and it cost him his life. Yeah. So and there was a few of those, you know, and people made all sorts of decisions under pressure. Um, most of them, thankfully, they came. We had our neighbour; she jumped in her swimming pool with a scuba tank on, right. you know, yeah. to stay and fight her house. And there's all sorts of, you know, everyone's got a story of that day, yeah. and they're all, you know, just you could sit down and write a book, I guess, about all the stories for what everyone went through on that on that day. It was, yeah, it was pretty full on. And I mean, we, we experienced that as lifeguards. Do you think that experience as a lifeguard helped you keeping your wife calm? Because, you know, even though she kept calm, as you said, but she's in the middle of that traumatic thing with the kids. Yeah. Do you think that that was something that, that helped? Yeah, I, I hope it did. Um, definitely on the lifeguards, yeah, it, being calm and, and watching experienced people you know, in, in intense situations, life and death situations, stay calm. It's sort of, it sits in the back of your mind that that's what you need to do. Sometimes it's easier said than done. Yeah. Um, and especially when you haven't got control. Like I, I didn't have control of the situation, but Justine did. And she just, you know, she handled it superbly, yeah. like just, you know, unbelievable the, the way, you know, there's times where she freaked out for sure, but then mm. she composed herself and, and, um, got her thoughts back together and, and continued on the on the journey just to, to keep the kids alive and keep her alive and stuff like that. Yeah, so I, I, I guess, you know, I was, I was, I guess I was calm in my voice, but uh, on the inside I was yeah. absolutely shitting myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know if lifeguard training helped me, but maybe I'll, I'll say yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, as, as you would. I mean, that that's something that I think, you know, as lifeguards and we're dealing with stuff, we've got, we've got control. Uh, but as you said, when you've got no control, yeah. um, that, that's a different story altogether. Yeah, absolutely. Well, mate, also, before moving down there, you're a, a, a well-known uh, coach as well. So just tell us a little bit about that, you know, you, Olympic-level coaching. Yeah, so I was a swimming coach for – I still am a swimming coach, but just not not a full-time one. Um, I coached pretty much for 25 years full-time. Uh, I guess the bulk of the success came out of the Sydney Uni program. I was assistant to Brian Sutton. We had oh, we had a pretty high level, high performance squad at Sydney Uni uh, in the early two thousands. Um, Chris Feidler, Elka Graham, uh, Phil Rogers, uh, Jeff Hugel, Scott Miller. Uh, the list goes on. We probably had you know twelve or fifteen Olympians in our program. Uh, then Brian moved on two thousand four after Athens, and I took over the program for about six or seven years and uh, had a couple of couple of winners. So, yeah, some kids broke some world records and we had some kids on some teams and stuff like that. So really enjoyable part of my life, but swimming coaching is um, with a young family. Uh, it's a pretty high-demand uh, profession, so you've got to – 
you've got to be 100% into it. And I wasn't sort of willing to sacrifice my family time mm. sort of as they started to get a little bit older. So I sort of took a backward step from coaching at that level. Hopefully one day I'll, I'll return. But um, definitely enjoyable years and um, especially watching the past uh, Olympics that happened a few months yeah. ago sort of gets the juices flowing again um, and especially with the Aussies but doing so well. Do you think uh, back then when you were coaching, is there much difference between the mentality of the, of the kids coming through swimming to what there was you know, back in the day? Yeah, it's interesting. This is a this is a sort of a hot topic at the moment, and depends which coach you talk to. Like some kids, some coaches will say that the kids were much tougher back then because they could endure more sort of um, the the workload of of what swimming is and the demands of what swimming is. But I don't know, the kids that swim now, they're they're pretty special kids, you know. They're they're, they're focused on achieving a goal. Um, they, they usually do well at school. They've got a good family environment and they're, they're pretty tough. Like, I don't think the toughness has changed. It, like, to, to be a, a swimmer at a high level, like at a national level, you've got to be tough, mm-hmm. mentally and physically tough. Um, to say that they're any less tough or more tough, I, I, don't, think, I don't think much has changed with, with kids and athletes. Maybe the, maybe the parents have changed. Mm. Maybe that's the, the issue, the way that we parents, probably a little bit different. But the kids who are, uh, who are goal-focused and, and want to do well in, in a sport or, or the sport of swimming, um, they're pretty determined and they're, they're a pleasure to be around, mm. you know. You don't really, you know, the ones that, that, are, that are focused and, and, and want to do it for the right reasons, they're there and, and they're just a pleasure to work with. You know, you get up every morning and you're just happy to be, you know, working with them so they can achieve their goal. But when you're coaching and, and you see kids coming into the pool, they're swimming, and can you tell the ones you think that, that this one's the one that's going to make it? To, yeah, to an Olympic oh, level? You, you can look at them sort of physically and, and see that they've got those attributes and you can, you, you know, they sit well in the water, they move well, they've got sort of that athletic intelligence about them. Um, but they also have to have the, the mental game as well and they're the ones that make it. Mm. So if you're lacking a little bit on the physical side but your mental game's strong, you'll probably make it. If you're physically got all the attributes, but you're not quite there mentally, um, you're probably not going to make it. So it's just getting that balance right with some of them. And, and, and kids surprise you, you know, late developing boys, you know, that they're all limbs and they, they trip over themselves and can't catch and, you know, at 15 or 16. But when they turn 18, 19, everything starts to fall into place for them and they end up being really good athletes. So there's not a cookie cutter approach to it all you've just got to work with the individual and and hopefully guide them through and the problem with swimming as you know with most sports that are high demand is the the big dropout rate at around that 16 you know they want to go to the nightclub or the pub and hang around their mates and girlfriends and boyfriends which is fine um but the ones that can get through that period and and stay in the sport, and that's what the game—the name of the game—is. Not to burn them out too early, but trying to give them an opportunity to, when they do reach their physical sort of peak, that you want them still there, you know, mm. at the pool with you. And as a, a good coach, do you, you obviously got to train them physically, but is there a big emphasis on the mental side and, and guiding them, as you said, outside of the pool? 
to get them past that period because um, you know they've got that potential? Yeah, I think that's what coaching is really. Um, you form relationships with, with these guys and girls and you just want to help them out and you become part of their life. Like they see you, you know, 15, 16 hours mm. of, of the week, you know, probably more than you see their parents. So you form these relationships and you just want them to be good people and if they happen to win a few swimming races along the way, well, that's a bonus, mm. you know. Um, but, yeah, it's um, it's – it's tough to develop that mental game if they're a little bit softer, but it's just you've just got to sort of guide them as best you can. And I think the mental game now with you know with sports psycho- uh, psychology and stuff like that is really come into sport in a big way, and it's yeah. it's, it's benefiting athletes and coaches too. So everyone, you know, a happy swimmer is a fast swimmer in my yeah. book. So if you can keep them happy, um, they'll hang around and if they're, yeah. they're happy, they'll probably swim fast for you too. Yeah, that sounds like a perfect idea, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any good swimmers coming through down your way? Oh, look, um, I wish I could say yes. Um, the South Coast is blessed with facilities. Uh, it has great pools and stuff like that. But the, swim, the competitive swimming side here – uh, to my frustration, isn't yeah. as good as I'd you know as it could be. There's yeah. a lot of potential down here. There's yeah. kids. There's just athletic kids everywhere down here. You know, I see them at footy. I see them on the beach. I see them surfing. Um, but competitive swimming isn't isn't a strong um, right. player at the moment. Hopefully that'll change. You never know, mate. With your skill, know. your skill level down there, mate. You never yeah. know. You yeah. could be producing. Uh, <laughs> was it twenty thirty two? Is it the uh, you yeah, want yeah, yeah. to Brisbane? Well, that that's the, that's the best you know motivator for anybody having a home Olympics. And yeah, you know, yeah. you, we were around when Sydney was happening, yeah, yeah. and the buzz around Sydney was just huge. You yeah. know, you just wanted to be a part of everything. Yeah. You couldn't go to it, you know, you went to an event every day if you could. Yeah. You know, you guys had it on the beach with the volleyball and stuff yeah. that was just massive. And the whole buzz around town was just, mate, it's like nothing else. So it's like Christmas every day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, to, to swim at your own uh, hometown yeah. Olympics, that would be a, an absolute uh, amazing experience. Oh, yeah. And, it's, you know, it'll be here before we know it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll probably be a bit too old, but... Oh, maybe I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you'll be right, mate. <laughs> All right, Aldo. Uh, now, mate, at the end of the interviews, I do the uh, my five fun facts. I'm going to oh, throw... Oh, yeah, I saw those. I'm, I'm yeah, going to yeah. throw uh, five questions at you. You can answer them however you want. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, here we go. Right. Mate, what would you call your boat if you had one? It's mm, a good question, Hopper. Um, I always thought that the best type of boats were other people's boats, so I'd call my boat borrowed. <laughs> Very good. Mate, uh, a hangover cure. Oh, mate, there's nothing like the, the ocean. That's, that cures it. Saltwater cures everything. Uh, what are you most proud of? Uh, mate, my family. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a pretty easy one. Mate, if you were a DJ, what would your DJ name be? Oh, I'd be DJ Aldo for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, mate, the last one, uh, what scene from a TV show will you never forget? Um, I was actually only watching this not so long ago. Um, I'm not sure how many people would remember this, but the Paul Hogan show. 
I'm yep. sure you remember. I, I remember the Paul Hogan show. So it was when uh, Hogs and Strop uh, just had a big party and then um, they had to drink this concoction that Strop made, which was made of beer, salt and pepper, Vegemite, a raw egg and an oyster. <laughs> and Strop actually was like on set and he sculled the, the first one and like Hogue spewed just watching him do it. And then um, Strop handled, he did this sort of little funny face and got it down into his belly. And then the scene went on and on and on and they were talking about the party and whatnot. And then at the end, Strop sculled the other one and yeah. he couldn't quite hold it down. <laughs> it just came up. And this was like, this is 70s TV in Australia. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's sort of Benny Hill type stuff, Three Stooges type stuff. But I'll never forget it. I watched it with my dad and I only just watched it recently on the passing of, um, of John Cornell who played yeah. Strop. Yeah, mate. Yeah. Great answers. Uh, <laughs> it'll be uh, yeah. Hopefully, uh, I can uh, you know get down and we we'll catch up for a beer some stage where we can get out of this lockdown and get down south. And uh, oh, yeah, the floodgates are going to open down here. It's going to yeah. be busy, busy, busy. But uh, mate, yeah, love to have a beer with you, Hoppo. Mate, Aldo, it's been great having the chat. Thanks for telling your story. It's great that your family are uh, all safe and well after the fires. And uh, mate, uh, stay safe. All right. Cheers, Hoppo. Appreciate it. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a warm welcome to a former lifeguard, Peter Cahoon. How are you? Hello, Hoppo. Great to be with Mate, you. Mate, uh, thinking back in the day, mm-hmm. the uh, Tamarama was always called the rock and you ended up going there when you were misbehaving at the other beaches and <laughs> that's right tell me about some of the characters that that got sent to the rock oh that's right hopper back in the day you didn't rotate through the three beaches and if you had if you got on the wrong side of <laughs> of those in charge you were sent to a season at the rock and we called tamarama <laughs> the rock it, look, it was it, it, it was sort of based on the ascent to Alcatraz sort of thing because Tamarama, as we know, is only a little 50-metre sort of wide beach surrounded by two big headlands and you're sort of in there and trapped. And it's a very dangerous beach, as we know, but some of the characters that were sent there, you can understand why they were sent there because <laughs> management didn't want them at Bondi. <laughs> oh, you had, you had guys like... Dave Noonan. Now, Dave Noonan was sent there with Pete Seville. He was a great uh, RIP. Uh, he was he was a great guy, and he was the Felix Unger of lifeguards. <laughs> everything there was germs everywhere. He had to spray everything down, and then you'd had Pete Seville, who was a drummer. He was a mad rock and roll drummer, and he bring his drum kits down there and you'd have sort of drum practice in the back of the, <laughs> the first aid room. And then of course in later years you had guys like like Brendan Reed who was he was very militant. Very militant. <laughs> and I think they needed he he was almost like a warden down there amongst some of the other lifeguards. Ponch of course was sent there, Billy Moore, myself. And we actually didn't mind it. We had this sort of fraternity of, of looking after Tamaram because there was no easy rescues at Tamar because you generally end up on the rocks because it's such a narrow beach. But Billy Moore and I had this policy, goes, look, the beach is shut a lot of the time. The surfers need to have their time. And we had a great relationship with the surfers. We let them surf as much as we could, but we said, guys, look, when the flags need to go out, you need to respect that, right? Well, 
trying to get some of the hardcore surfers <laughs> off that right-hander and left-hander coming in off Maccas into Tama. Very difficult indeed. But we managed to do it because we'd often go surfing with them. On a Saturday morning, though, this character by the name of Glenn Hastings, Stacker, would turn up. <laughs> now, Stacker was a casual. Now, Stacker came down and goes, we've got to clear those surfers at Saturday morning. Stacker, we've, we, we'll, we'll manage the situation. No, they've got to get cleared out. <laughs> Stacker would get his golf clubs out. He'd set up his <laughs> golf clubs and he'd start firing a one, a one wood <laughs> in, into the surfers at the reef. <laughs> Billy and I had established good relationships with these people all week. These surfers, and then Stacker started lobbing (laughs) one irons into them to clear the water. Oh God, we just we just cover our head. In the end, though, we realised on wet days, Hoppo, we managed to create a little nine-hole golf course down there, didn't we? (laughs) At Tamarama, wet days, nothing doing. We only needed two clubs, a putter, and a sandwich. That's it. It's a, uh, it was a good bunker, wasn't it, down there, Tamarama? It was one great big bunker. We had, some, <laughs> we had some, we had some great memories, and that, and although we call it the Rock, we do it with, we do it with fondness because the guys that were sent to the Rock uh, usually a little bit eccentric, yeah. and uh, they always, we always had a lot of fun, and um, we have great memories of of what we call affectionately known as the Rock, <laughs> mate. It's uh, some great memories there, and. Pete, it's a pleasure, mate, to have you in the beach shack telling these old stories. You betcha. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.